0: This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 starting with verse 12. And the last time we looked at the four sources of encouragement uh, that we get from the Lord and as I break it up the second part of the chapter will be uh, six points of action in response to faith. Now for those of you you know we had some a lot of people come up in the last six months who gave their hearts to the Lord and they're new believers and they're still finding their way around the, their faith. And if I didn't say it enough, I'd like to reiterate the fact that God wants us to have a personal relationship with Him. He created us. He's not some distant God that kind of put a little tinker toy set together and he, he went on vacation. He is intimately involved with us. He loves us. He sent His Son to die for each one of us in this room personally. And He wants a relationship with us. So we have responsibilities in this relationship, I call them relational responsibilities because, you know, we all have either a best friend or a spouse or children or co-workers, professional relationships, parents, and we, we navigate through those relationships in life, don't we? We do things that please the other person. You know, if we, if we have a good relationship, we um, sometimes need to lean on them. And, you know, it's no different when it comes to us and God. We want to get to know him better. We want to have that intimacy with him. When a whole world is forsaken us, God will always be there for us. But I have to tell you that we do have relational responsibility. If we neglect those relational responsibilities, just like in a human relationship, that relationship will start to dry and wither up. So God is, does all the work on his end. He's reached out to us first. He's made the ultimate sacrifice, even when we were still sinners and living in, in in vehement opposition to him he still died for our sins so this morning i want you to be blessed with looking at you know think not only of listen if we give other humans uh ourselves and we have a good relationship with with them does god deserve anything less and the answer is no as a matter of fact he deserves more than that he wants us to put him first place so let's check out these six points and i like to break it up into points at times, so that we can kind of go through landmarks as we're studying it in the morning, and we start, oh, I'm three, four, and you know, it, it kind of orders things in our mind. I like doing that. So, starting with verse 12, he says, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Therefore, another connecting word, from what? running the race to win, we saw this last Sunday, and two, enduring and expecting God's loving discipline, spiritual discipline in our lives. Therefore, runner, do the following in light of what you heard. Strengthen the hands and the feeble knees. Straighten the paths for the feet and do healing on a part that's lame rather than have it be dislocated. Now, for a a runner, they would understand this running on the track. You don't want obstacles to trip over. You have you have an injury, you need to nurse it and deal with it and let it heal. right? So he's kind of going back and forth between this object lesson of a runner, but also the Christian walk. So we have to make sure we make that parallel. So the first point that we look at, the first responsibility is at times we need to pick ourselves up. Yeah, God asks us to do that, to pick ourselves up. Runner, It's always too soon to quit. Elijah, what are you doing out here? Get back in the game. Remember Elijah? Incredible victory. 300 false prophets at the uh, Mount Carmel, prophets of Baal. He defeats them. And one woman, the queen, says, I'm going to kill you. And he's terrified and he runs. And God catches up with him and takes there. He ministers to him, but he says, Elijah, go back. There's 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You need to go back there, right? We need to continue running at times. Or all the time. We need to press on, be encouraged, be reinvigorated. And by extension, what happens? When other believers see what we're doing and our excitement for the Lord and our desire to keep going, what does it do? I I remember as a weak Christian and as a new Christian, there were those I could look to and they never seemed moved. And I said, you know, I want to be like that one day. And when we are like that, we give others encouragement to continue pressing on. He says, so what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. That's kind of interesting. Almost, you know, you have a runner who has an injury and needs to take care of it. But here, in a sense, it's a a spiritual injury, something that could go one of two ways. Maybe a a marital situation or a relational uh, situation, that if it goes south, it becomes bitter. It could end in divorce. But if it gets better, it can be healed, and it could be a great testimony, So what we want to do is we want the lame things, the injured things, the sprained things in our lives to be strengthened and to be a testimony and not to go south and not to be lame. See, we're called to be victors, not defeatists. Not defeatists. Listen, there is a time and a place from the pulpit to really rile you up. And this is that time. We're not called to be defeatists. We're called to be victors. And every person in this room has the ability, the God-given ability, to become a victor. More than conquerors to walk in that. Again, to turn something that looks hopeless into a great testimony. We are in the salvation business, but we're also in the salvaging business, right? You can take. Listen, I'm a I'm a junk collector. Ask my wife. I hoard stuff in my garage. I I can take anything I see. Somebody else throws it out. She's like, What are you doing? You know, I just pick it up and put it in my car. I'm like, I could use this for something. And then when I Three years down the road, I'm like, look, see, I'm glad I saved it. <laughs> so sometimes we, we salvage things in the world, but more importantly, in the spiritual realm, nobody is beyond redemption. Nobody is beyond salvaging. Let's keep that in mind. So, two major concepts we see for maturity and growth woven through Scripture, and I love the ebb and flow through this. We find encouragement in the Scripture, we find exhortation. But we also find conviction and personal responsibility. There's times that we have, we read the Bible, we read God's word and say, you know what? I need to pick it up a little bit. I know what the Bible says about this and I can do it because God has given me the power to be able to do this. And this is why I have difficulty with preachers who, call yourself a motivational speaker. Don't call yourself a preacher if you're not willing to come up here from the pulpit and give the difficult things from the word, the bitter things, the tough things, the hard to swallow Along with the encouraging and the exhortative. All that produces is whiny, spoiled, shallow, and immature believers who will not lead anybody to Christ. And that's not what God is looking for. Verse 14, he says, Pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So the second action we find is. God asked us to pursue these two things, and these two relationships. Pursue it with all men and women, brothers and sisters. This is the horizontal relationship. This is our relationship to others on the earth. Okay? I want to read Romans 12:18, just one verse. And uh, the Apostle Paul says, If it is possible, I love this, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. What that means is it's not always easy. What it means is we wear with each other. We're all sinners. And sometimes we have our moments and sometimes other people have their moments. But it says as much as depends on you, peace should be the goal. But as you know, when you're dealing with a situation or a person, sometimes they don't want peace. They almost seem to enjoy the fact that they're not giving you the satisfaction of reconciling the relationship. And at times you may have to sit that one out for a while. As much as the pen, you know what, Lord, between me and you, I'm I'm trying here. And they're not cooperating. But we do the best we can because peace is the goal. So that's that horizontal relationship that we have. There's also a vertical relationship and pursue holiness. Our holiness to God and how we behave as believers. Remember, a carnal Christian will never lead anyone to the true gospel. They won't lead them to the truth. Now, I I have an issue, too, and I I know that it's in this area as well, that some of these uh, youth leaders who are, let's say, my age in their 40s, and they have 20-somethings and and teens, and they think it's cool to win them to start throwing F-bombs around and to to talk vulgarly. Um, I don't get that. I really don't. Because when my wife and I, who was my girlfriend at the time, when we were in our 20s and we came to a Calvary for the first time, and we heard Pastor Lloyd speak, and we were in our 20s, and he was in his 40s. You know what? I, I looked at him, and in my mind, I thought, "Gee, if I ever make it that far, because it just you know, I wasn't saved and doing things I shouldn't be doing. If I ever make it to his age, I want to be like him." And then I scrutinized him. It's not fair what we do to our leaders, is it? Scrutinized him and his lifestyle, and what kind of car he drove, and how he lived, and how he talked to people. And I came to the conclusion: here's a guy that. I could really look up to holiness he lived a life of holiness and that's important you want that in your leaders and some people are afraid by that word holiness and you might be afraid of that word but i will tell you that you want it in your leadership absolutely pray for holiness for your leaders and all holiness is basically it means to be set apart right set apart from what set apart from what everybody else is doing in the world that doesn't think about God or doesn't care about him or doesn't care to live like him that's what holiness is I have to ask ourselves this question when I look in the mirror and I look at myself spiritually do I look more like Jesus or do I look more like the world do I look more like my unsafe friends and what they're doing in my lifestyle or do I look more like Jesus and those are the questions that we have to ask ourselves and I'll tell you this, if you send your young adult, your, your teenage boy or your you know, 23-year-old daughter to one of our youth groups and there's a pastor running it and it's on an off day, you want to make sure that there's holiness. You don't want anybody coming home and saying, my, he was, he was inappropriate with me. So when we look at holiness, we actually say to ourselves, you know what, I want that from my church. I want that from my leaders, but we should also want it for ourselves without which no one will see the Lord. If we have a, a... Listen, we all sin. I have to repent every day. Trust me, I don't, there's not a day that goes by that I say, wow, well, <laughs> I did a great job today. I didn't think a thought I shouldn't have. I didn't sin. I, didn't, I sin every day, and I have to repent for that. But holiness is a general attitude of trying to be more Christ-like and less like your old self and less like the world. So holiness, really, when you think about it, it's not a scary word. It's actually something that we can look forward to. I tell you what, Jesus Christ hung out with a ton of sinners, but you never saw him acting like them. His influence was more powerful. He influenced them for positive. They didn't influence him for negative. And when we look at our relationships as Christians, brothers and sisters, do we have some relationships when we're hanging out with certain people and they're causing us to be more like the world and we're not... Influencing them for the positive it doesn't mean you have to force them to convert or change. No, it's not what it is, but it means that they're not influencing. And we say, and we say after months gone by, boy, i really, I really haven't been praying. I, I really don't feel right. I feel a little ashamed. You know, we have to look at those things. So, as a matter of fact, yeah. Let me say this too: holiness is not. It's not a churchy set of rules, you know. You come into this church and here's the list of things you do and here's the list of things you don't do. Now, the things on the do list, you better do them. The things on the don't, we'd better not catch you doing them. We'll kick you out of the church, you know. That's not what holiness is. We're not churchy people that try to win people to church. We're Christians. We're normal, okay. We try to win people into the kingdom, into salvation. So holiness is not what you should be doing. or what you. We don't have a list of rules and things to do. Do what the Bible says. The more you read the Bible, Chuck Smith wrote a book that says that why grace changes everything. Actually, it's the grace of God. The more we understand his love, the more we understand his purpose for our lives, the more we live in his grace, the more we're going to want to be like him. And by default, we are going to be changed. It just happens. We weren't forced to do it. Somebody didn't hold us down. It wasn't a miserable uh, experience. It was something that just happened over time. So let's understand that. Verse 15, he says, Looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Now, 14 and 15 are tied together, and we look at this third action, or this third response in response to faith, and it says to be really be careful. And this is on our end not to fall short of the grace of God. And we should be looking out for each other as well. Watch out for bitterness, which only leads to trouble and defiling, contamination. And these things are possible and probable when we make a lifestyle out of unholiness. Now, if there is a warning, then it's possible to fall short. God doesn't warn us of anything that's not possible. If there's warnings in here, we need to heed them. Because it could affect us. You know, the five points of Calvinism need to be tweaked a little bit. Uh, number The I for irresistible grace. We're going to find out in a minute that Esau resisted the grace of God. Many people resist God's grace. And that's why it says don't fall short of it. Looking diligently, pay attention. However, if there's a warning here, then it also means it's possible to attain this for the, on the flip side. To attain the grace of God. Who wants to miss out on God's grace? I don't. I want God's grace in my life every day. It's good for me. It feels good. It makes me successful. So, grace, God's empowerment, Christ's sacrifice, these are things that help us to live the life that we should be living. 16. It says lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, which for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. The fourth action, don't get entangled in sexual sins, of course. And how timely, we just had a tremendous showing in the men's group yesterday and we talked about purity. We had some really good discussion. Also, don't be a godless person or a profane person like Esau. Now Esau, you can find him in Genesis. Jacob and Esau, right? And Esau was an interesting character. So I'm going to talk about Esau for a a few moments. Well, Esau was a a hunter. I, I would characterize Esau as a man's man. Basically, from what, it's just my impression of him from what I read in the scripture. So he's out, and he's out for a while, and he comes home, and he's really hungry. And his brother Jacob is making uh, lentil soup. Now, my wife makes a mean lentil soup. I love lentils. <laughs> but I don't know that I would have gone as far as Esau. <laughs> so basically, Jacob, Jacob says, well, you could have some, but you've got to give me your birthright. He's like, ah, if I die, what does it matter? Here's my birthright. He wasn't going to die. But he really wanted those lentil soups, and he he gave up really something that was spiritual to to his brother. In addition to that, he missed the blessings of his father. But it seems like his father had to talk him into saying, listen, I want to bless you. And then when he found out that his brother got the blessing, he was really upset about it. So Esau, he was in the family of God, but God wasn't first in his life. And when the scripture characterizes as a person and we read some things and we say, you know, I'm, I'm missing something, sometimes we are. We don't know the whole history of Esau, but we know what the Bible says about Esau. Now, Esau probably had some good worldly qualities. He probably would have made a good boss today, might have been a great neighbor, civics leader, workout partner, fellow soldier, whatever the case may be. Esau had some good qualities. Everybody has good and bad qualities. But he didn't care much for the things of God, even though he was in the family of God. He's a good example. Why is Esau put in here? Well, there are believers today that do the same thing. They have time for everything. Every worldly pursuit, they're always doing something, and God is always last. Now, before I was a Christian, God was last. He was my my lifeline. I was a godless person. But when I came to Christ, I really tried hard, and I'm not saying he's always first. Like I said, I'm a sinner like you, but I really try to put him up there. I really do, and I want my, my son to see that as well. However, there are some that come to the cross, God is always last. He's after all the vacations, all the educations, all the motivations, all the recreations. And and they're nice people, but God is last. And then they complain when their kids get older and they see the hypocrisy in their parents. And they wonder why their kids don't put God first. But I've given them everything. They've seen the world. Listen to what you're saying. You know, have you ever done anything to allow them to reach out to God? Have you shown God through your example that you want to put him first? They'll catch on to that too. They'll catch on to that as well. Esau sold his birthright, blessings, many tears. He was in the family of God like many are today. He lived the life of the flesh like many do today. He came to God when there was tragedy like many do today. And it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing to see. When you're that type of person and things go wrong, you want to come to God to fix the symptoms. But God wants to fix the disease. Oh, I don't want to fix the disease right now. That could be too painful. It could mean a change in lifestyle. It hurts. Can you deal with the pain? A good doctor, the great physician, will say, I know it hurts, but we have to deal with the disease. I can't just keep treating the symptoms. It's not a good doctor. Well, as the great physician, God is no different. He wants to deal, but, but it could be painful when you work on the disease. That's why people want the symptoms treated. Again, this was the type of person that Esau was. Living, indulging himself in the flesh, and there are those that call themselves a believer, that they look no different from the world, barely tethered to God or the church, and only in case something goes wrong. The fire insurance clause. We buy fire insurance, right? Because if the the place catches fire in that one instance, you want to make sure that everything's going to be taken care of. And it's a sad thing. And people who want the blessings of God... Without God, Imagine that. Lord, I want your blessings, but I don't want you. Not a good thing. Now, there are some that have grown up in the church and don't feel that they're really big sinners. They don't feel that, and and they act on that. They don't show love. They don't show grace because they don't feel that they need a whole lot of love and grace. Remember the prodigal son, the older brother? But father, I was with you all the time. What do you mean he came back? You're gonna kill the fatted calf, you're gonna have a party for him. He's no good. He was out on the streets, he squandered your money. And there's forty percent of the prodigal son has to do with the older brother. You know, I grew up in the church, I was saved at an early age. I'm good. I'm good. That's dangerous. Pride might be an issue there. So we have to consider this when we look at it. Now, I looked at a few translations. And this doesn't mean that Esau couldn't repent. I went back into my Greek dictionary. I went back into some alternate translations. And really what it means is Esau, his tears weren't for the right reasons. It wasn't for the right reasons. Again, he wanted the blessings of God without God. Now, tears do not always indicate genuineness. I find, I find that in counseling too. Somebody starts with the waterworks. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're correct. It could mean I'm busted, and I don't know what to do at this point. There's a lot of different reasons why we shed tears. So Esau shed his tears. He he wanted those blessings, and he was he was outside of that realm. Verse 18, we go on. He says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest. It's Mount Sinai, back in the Old Testament. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you, here's the contrast, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So the fifth action that we see is that we take responsibility for our future. Make the right choice. There's a sharp dichotomy, and we're going to go into the context because context is everything. There's a sharp dichotomy between choosing spiritual life and choosing the world, the temporal, the passing universe, that of the the things of the flesh. And I love God's word because it's empowering. God doesn't force us to do anything. He gives us free will. But he warns us and he prods us and he exhorts us and he encourages us to make the right decision. But ultimately, it's our decision. We can choose to hurt ourselves, can't we? We can choose to make a mess of our lives. It's foolish, but we can do it. We're not hurting anyone but ourselves. Make the right choice. So let's look at context. The Hebrew Christians, who the writer is writing to, had a temptation. They were completed in Christ, but, but. There were difficulties. There were trials. The, the Roman world, was st- the ship was turning. It was starting to turn against Christianity. That's a problem probably had issues with family members, issues with the diaspora going out into the different areas, not being received well, maybe not having a support group, and they started to be tempted to to have some security, and they thought that security was going back into the old system, back into the legal system, which was going to be passing when this was written in only a few years, which would have shown to be futile anyway. So the writer is saying, you really want to go back to the old covenant? Because you were saved in the New Covenant. Let's talk about the Old Covenant for a minute. Verses 18 through 21. It was the giving of the law. It was Mount Sinai. It was terrifying. Moses, take your shoes off. You're on hallowed ground. If anything such as an animal or a person touches this ground, they're to be thrust through with a javelin. The law. The law was condemning. It showed us that we were flawed as humans. There was fear. There was death. It was unable to save. But what it did was it showed us our need for a savior. And he didn't want those believers who he was writing to to get that false sense of security to go back to the old system. And you hear that today, don't you? Well, I'm a good person. Well, I can keep the Ten Commandments. Well, I'm not a murderer. Okay, let's go back to the Ten Commandments. Now let's remember the teaching that Jesus gave on the Sermon on the Mount where he said, if you think about these things, you've committed murder, lust." all these kinds of, of crimes because you thought about it. It's an offense to God. So Jesus further showed that the Ten Commandments were more condemning than the people thought. And Jesus was like, I'm the answer. I'm the Savior. I've come to, to free you. So what, you and I are under the New Covenant, and the Hebrew Christians were under the New Covenant. So we're kind of all in the same boat in a sense, even though 2,000 years have separated us. So the contrast, verses 20 through, t- through 24, we'll look at the difference we were blessed enough to come to the covenant of grace, not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. It's freeing, it saves, and it brings peace. It brings peace. We're in company with Christ, the Savior, the angels, forgiven sinner, and this is certainly a better retirement plan, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't take much when you, he shows the difference between the two, make a decision. We can do this the hard way or we can do this the easy way. Me personally, I like to, as I get older, I want to choose the easy way. (laughs) I'm just going to read something really quick from Warren Wiersbe in his book, Be Confident, because it doesn't just happen, or didn't just happen, the problem back then. On page 167, he says, Why is there so little preaching and teaching about heaven? A friend asked me. And then he gave his own answer, which is probably correct. I guess we have it so good on earth, we just don't think about heaven. And that's the peril. The peril to the persecuted believer in Indonesia or Iran or North Korea, the peril is death, imprisonment, being separated from your family. You really got to decide if you're really a believer or not because your whole world is coming down because the government is hostile towards your belief system. We have it great in America, don't we? Satan gets us from the other end. Not necessarily to press us down and, and squish us and say, I'm going I'm to make you lonely. You're going to lose your health. You're going to lose your life. That's them who we're going to spend eternity with. With us, he tells us, you got time, man. Go party it up. Have a good time. Hey, go make some money. Listen, social events, money, these things are not bad in and of themselves. But when we start taking a laundry list and piling it up on top of God and putting him on the bottom, that's a problem. We do have it too good in the West. But I think that's going to change. Listen, I'm not a prophet, but I did take economics in college, and that was my major. And I could see the first crash, and I did say that from the pulpit. I have news for you. It's not over. The way things are going, the way the government's running this country, we're in for some difficult times, and we're going to start to feel the pinch. We're going to. I'll tell you that right now. It's not going to get better anytime soon. And then... We really need to reevaluate our faith are we really trusting in god or are we trusting in all this stuff that we've accumulated not bad stuff doesn't say money is the root of all evil remember it says the love of money is the root of all evil it's the heart for that stuff where jesus says do business with it christians be smart with your finances and do it to glorify me but the person who loves money is a worldly person. Bible says you can't love the Father and love the world at the same time. They're incompatible. Verse 24. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Wow, we're going back to the Old Testament again. We're going way back into Genesis. What is he talking about here? Well, if you remember, Cain killed his brother Abel, and God said his blood cries out for justice. That was the old covenant. Justice, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. God instituted that. However, when Christ died up until his last breath, he cried out for what? Justice? No. He cried out for forgiveness. Even the the ones who were mocking him and the worst religious hypocrites while he was bleeding to death, and they were mocking and spitting. And he says, Father, don't even hold this sin to their account. It's not personal. So Christ's blood cries out for forgiveness, which is the covenant that we are under. Thank God. Amen? It must have been hard being under that old covenant. So the fifth action of taking responsibility for your future is really empowerment. Do you realize every individual sitting here has a a responsibility and a a hand in their own destiny, in their own fate? Don't Don't let somebody else control you. God's given you free will. But he also wants you to choose the right thing. Whether it's desiring of salvation or desiring to to grow in the Lord, we can make right choices. And the, the scripture empowers us to do that. It gives us the information to make those decisions. I have to tell you, I'm just amazed when I see people come forward to receive the Lord. You know, I I have my eyes closed and I'm praying like everybody else and I hear the clapping. So the clapping tells me, look up, somebody just got up and they're coming to the front. I don't know what motivates them. I don't know what they do after that, but it blows me away to see it every time and to know that I'm in the middle of it. That's neat. Thank you, Lord. I like being a part of this. But, you know, God does different things with different people, moves their hearts in different ways, stimulates them, regenerates them. Every time they hear the word, it does something a little bit different inside of their soul. It's food for the soul. Verse 25, last few verses. It says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him, who spoke on earth, right, the old covenant, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he is promising, yet once more... I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven, referring back to Haggai 2.6. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire, Is this incompatible? No, it's not. We'll we'll talk about that. So the sixth response is, don't draw back. Maintain the proper course. Listen to the voice from heaven. If you disobeyed the voice of God in the old covenant, or Moses, his spokesperson, how much more is there going to be a problem with the completed covenant and not hearing the voice from heaven as well? This is my son, hear him. These were Jesus' followers. Guys, stop talking. Stop scurrying about. Stop in your tracks and listen to my son. He's got an important message for you. He's the way to salvation. Now this word shake is used five times in three verses. And when I see repetition in the scripture, I always stop and I pay attention. So I go into my Greek lexicon and I find that shake means this. It's not, you know, shake and bake, put it in the oven. It's more powerful than that. It means to incite. It means to agitate, as in a washing machine. You know, everything's just all over the place. It means to rock. You know? So I just say, well, you know, it's I, I kinda I gotta bring out the flavor here, you know what I'm saying? This is serious business. God is, is rocking. He's going to rock the world. Better than any concert you've ever seen, any boom boxes and subwoofers. He is the ultimate rocker. Number one, God shook things on Mount Sinai. Boy, he really shook the people. Oh, Moses, you're going to speak for us? How about we speak for God? And then they saw what God could do and they went, on second thought, Moses, would you speak for us? <laughs> I don't want to go near him. He's scary. God shook things on the earth when Jesus was crucified on the mount. Remember the great earthquake? And the graves split open and, and bodies of the, of the dead came up. Pretty amazing stuff. And God is shaking things today, no? Yes? We had this discussion when I was uh, praying with the ushers. I don't, I don't think God caused... There's going to be a time in Revelation, scary time, where his judgments are going to rain down on the earth. I don't think he caused that storm in the Philippines. I think he's just starting to withdraw himself and let the powers of entropy just start to envelop the world. And I think that's what we're seeing. It was amazing in Hurricane Sandy... Um, by my house, it was recorded 65, 70 miles an hour wind. I had a, a, a tree, a 30-foot tall tree in my front driveway that in one of the gusts, it just blew down. The tree just blows down. All the roots come out and stuff. I can't imagine what 200-mile-an-hour winds are like. But we're starting to see these disasters start to become more prevalent. You know, And, and the Bible is very clear. We're, we're running out of time. Entropy is building up. And we're going from a a situation of order to disorder. So all those atheists for all those years who enjoyed nice weather and said, oh, you know, this just happened. Everything, the magnetic field and the winds and, you know, the axis of the earth, it just happened. Well, let's see what happens when everything's not so fine-tuned anymore. And open your eyes and pay attention because there's a shaking coming. And I'll say this too, for some of you today who don't know the Lord, God wants to wake you up. He wants to shake you out of the complacency of your lifestyle and to show you that he has things that are permanent and unshakable. Believe me, I want to get out of the shakable because I like. as I get older, I like routine more. I don't like to see what's going on. I want to get, I want to get out of the shakable and get into the unshakable. I like comfort just like everybody else. So he's shaking things. Verse 27, faith in cross and the Christ and eternal promises are the only things that cannot be shaking. Are you still living for the world? Well, then jump into a salt shaker and just move around, and that's going to be the rest of your life. Because that's what this world is. It's passing away. It has nothing for you. Politicians? Listen, both parties. Promise, promise, promise. You get tired of it. The voter apathy is is really terrible in this country because people have given up. Because they don't trust them anymore. World? What does the world have for you? America? Where are we going? Verse 29, it says, our God is a consuming fire. Now we know this, that fire will be used to cleanse the earth. The Bible talks about a new heavens and a new earth, but this consuming fire, that the, and this is in our future. We also know that there's eternal fire for those who reject God's way of salvation. The God of love is also a God of justice, and we can't forget that. Now how do you reconcile that, the two of them? I just think of the warrior the warrior who suits up for battle, and he goes out and fights evil, and his hands are feared by evil. When that warrior comes home and takes off his armor and lays his spear down, and he goes to touch his child, and they, they, they nestle into the warrior's arms. This is daddy to me. That's our God. He has to fight evil. He is a God of justice. But he's also made a covering for you so that when he comes home, or you come to him, and he opens up his arms... Jesus opened up his arms wide with those nail prints that you can feel safe under his wing. You don't fear the hands of the warrior. That's how we can make the two of them compatible, a God of justice and a God of love. He's got to do both. And it really goes back to this point on relational responsibility. I talked about it the first, and this is where I'm going to end. We have a relational responsibility to our God. He's already sent his son to die for our sins. Every sin that we've committed in the past, everyone in the future, he died for those sins. He put out the olive branch. He put out his hand while we were still spitting in his face. And he said, I love you. That was his, his love to us. We have a relational responsibility to take his hand. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's calling you through his word. He's doing something in your heart. Amen? If you know the Lord, things are going to start heating up in this country. And when he starts shaking the world, are we going to be the chaff that blows away when God does his shaking on his threshing floor? Or are we going to be the wheat that he can use to, to spring forth a beautiful crop, some 30, 60, 90 fold, shaken down, pressed, pressed down, overflowing? Is that going to be us? And you have to decide, brothers and sisters, this morning, if you're going to be the wheat or you're going to be the chaff. Let's pray. The Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the word as always, and we thank you for the encouragement mixed with conviction. We do have personal responsibility.